fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seven tales, on distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore, they live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never G'day Swellians, welcome to The Greatest Stories Never Told. I'm continuing a bit of a series of stories on Indonesia and Bali, uh, in which we take a bit of a closer look at the island, the politics, the culture, the economics, and just uh, add a bit of context to the interview with Mega Samadhi. And we might have mentioned some things in that interview that you wanted to know more about, um, and this is my attempt to do that. Therefore, I give to you the Idiot's Guide to Indonesian Poverty. As Indonesian surf travel once again resumes, we take a closer look at the forces underpinning our beloved archipelago's economic disadvantage. The village of Jumbrana, West Bali, 2015, and a grisly discovery has just been made. A crew of workers digging out an old well have come across five skulls belonging to victims of one of the worst, though least known about, genocides of the 20th century. Virtually every village in Bali has a mass grave, explains Nura Surawayan, a doctoral student who has researched the 1965-66 genocide in which 500,000 to 3 million left-leaning students, teachers, trade unionists, activists, artists, peasants, workers and politicians were killed. All elements of society were involved in some way with the killing, he says. Many more victims of the genocide were also discovered during the construction of Bali's many tourist resorts and developments. I have spoken to developers who frequently come across bodies when digging foundations for tourist hotels in Kuta and Sunua, says a history student at Denpasar University in Bali, who preferred to remain nameless. The woman had interviewed more than 50 people while investigating Bali's mass graves. They instruct the builders to ignore the skeletons and to keep on building, she says. In central Java, 16 mass graves home to an estimated 5,000 bodies were found in 2017. A local farmer in his 70s told the BBC what he saw one night in 1965 during the slaughter. They came on carts, pulled by cows. Their hands were tied together with rope. They were forced to kneel, then shot in the back by soldiers and kicked into mass graves, he said. To this day, the government has refused to properly acknowledge or apologise for the genocide. Many of those responsible still have family members in power. Massacres and mass killings are the language of power in Indonesia, explains Andreas Hasono, a consultant for Human Rights Watch in Indonesia, going on to list the numerous massacres that have occurred since 1950 in Aceh, East Timor, Papua, Borneo, Madura, Sulawesi, Java and Bali. 
Indonesia is today ruled by politicians and generals whose fathers or godfathers were involved in one of those massacres, he says. The link between Indonesia's forgotten genocide and surfing might seem tenuous, but it's not. It's half the reason we go there. While the quality of surf in this 18,000 island archipelago is undeniable, the cheapness of the region is also one of its biggest draw cards. And you can't make sense of the radically reduced cost of living without understanding the genocide. Indonesia's bloodshed began after six Indonesian generals were allegedly killed by communists in an attempted coup. While this has never been proven, it nonetheless paved the way for a counter-coup by a military general by the name of Mohamed Sahado. Acting with the permission and help of the United States, Australia and Britain, Sahado authorised the slaughter of anyone suspected of being a communist. Writing in The Guardian, the award-winning investigative journalist John Pilger explains, Ralph McGee, a senior CIA operations officer in the 1960s, describes the terror of Sahado's takeover in 1965-66 as, quote-unquote, the model operation for the US-backed coup that got rid of Salvador Allende in Chile seven years later. The CIA forged a document purporting to reveal a leftist plot to murder Chilean military leaders, just like what happened in Indonesia in 1965. The US Embassy in Jakarta supplied Sahado with a zap list of Indonesian Communist Party members and crossed off the names when they were killed or captured. Roland Chalice, BBC Southeast Asia correspondent at the time, told me how the British government was secretly involved in this slaughter. British warships escorted a ship full of Indonesian troops down the Malacca Straits so they could take part in the terrible Holocaust, he said. I and other correspondents were unaware of this at the time. There was a deal, you see. Suharto's CIA-backed coup deposed Indonesia's left-wing president, Sukarno. The son of a Balinese mother and Javanese schoolteacher, Sukarno grew up in poverty before becoming a revolutionary that would lead Indonesia to independence following more than 100 years of Dutch colonial rule. During the fight for freedom, he was imprisoned for three years and exiled to Sumatra for a further five Indonesia was eventually liberated from Dutch colonial rule by Japan during the Second World War and announced its independence soon after. Following Japan's surrender in 1945, however, the Allied forces, Britain, Australia and the United States, used their military might to try and restore the country to Dutch colonial rule. Several attempts were made to assassinate Sukarno without success until he was ousted by coup. At the height of the Cold War, President Sukarno had met with everyone from John F. Kennedy to Che Guevara, declaring his intention to foster quote-unquote Asian-African solidarity in response to colonialism, imperialism and exploitative capitalism. In a remarkable speech delivered in Bandung, Indonesia in 1955 to an audience that included leaders from 29 African and Asian countries, he urged the downtrodden peoples of the world to unite and cast off the shackles of colonialism. For many generations, our peoples have been the voiceless ones in the world. We have been the unregarded, the peoples for whom decisions were made by others whose interests were paramount, the peoples who lived in poverty and humiliation. Then our nations demanded, nay fought for independence, and achieved independence. And with that independence came responsibility. 
we have heavy responsibilities to ourselves and to the world and to the yet unborn generations, but we do not regret but we do not regret them, he said. But Indonesia's resource wealth was too immense for the West to ignore. Like they would soon do to Vietnam, the United States and its allies began plotting ways to get their hands on the country's precious minerals, what US President Nixon called, quote, the richest hoard of natural resources, the greatest prize in Southeast Asia. With Sukarno out of the way and millions of his followers dead, his successor, General President Sahado opened the country up to exploitation by multinational mining companies and, later, unscrupulous clothing manufacturers. Investigative journalist John Pilger takes up the story again. Within a year of the bloodbath, Indonesia's economy was effectively redesigned in America, giving the West access to vast mineral wealth, markets and cheap labour, what President Nixon called the greatest prize in Asia. In November 1965, the greatest prize was handed out at a remarkable three-day conference sponsored by the Time Life Corporation in Geneva. Led by David Rockefeller, all the corporate giants were represented. The major oil companies and banks, General Motors, Imperial Chemical Industries, British American Tobacco, Siemens, US Steel and many others. Across the table sat Sahado's US trained economists, who agreed to the corporate takeover of their country, sector by sector. The Freeport Company got a mountain of copper in West Papua. A US-European consortium got the nickel. The giant Alcoa Company got the biggest slice of Indonesia's bauxite. America, Japanese and French companies got the tropical forests of Sumatra. When the plunder was complete, President Lyndon Johnson sent his congratulations on, quote, a magnificent story of opportunity seen and promise awakened. 30 years later, with the genocide in East Timor also complete, the World Bank described the Sahado dictatorship as a, quote, model pupil. The newly installed General President Sahado ruled Indonesia with an iron fist for the next 32 years, embezzling an estimated US $15 billion to $35 billion from his people, more than any dictator in modern history. With its vast resource wealth disappearing overseas and workers' rights eliminated by the fascist Sahado dictatorship, Indonesia became a hub of sweatshop labour for leading brands such as Nike, Adidas, Gap and Reebok. Decades of corruption, self-interest by political elites and nihilistic greed has today wound its way through every rung of Indonesian society, evidence of which can be found in everything from the corrupt police the lack of waste disposal infrastructure and subsequent trash-strewn beaches and ocean, lax building and safety regulations, an ongoing genocide in West Papua, and a litany of other human and workers' rights abuses. I took advantage of Indonesia's reduced cost of living as much as anyone. I lived there for three years in my 20s while working as a freelance journalist around Southeast Asia. That job forced me to confront and sit with the brutal consequences of the actions carried out by my government and governments like them. I recall sitting in a makeshift bamboo encampment near Chunggu in Bali with a husband and wife and their two children. The couple had been working three months straight with no days off on a nearby construction site, earning slave wages. Each afternoon, the female workforce would trudge ashen-faced down a street lined with cafes, bars and western tourists sipping on cocktails worth the equivalent of two or three days' wages. 
I interviewed local punk rock musicians and activists who'd survived assassination attempts for demanding accountability from their leaders and a better future for their people. It's the accumulation of so much injustice toward the local people of Bali, and this case shows everything we've been desperately fighting against since Sahado. The top-level conspiracies, the corrupted government, the heartless tourism industry, etc., explained Getty Ariastana, a leader in the Tolak Reclamasi movement and drummer, vocalist in the influential Bali-based punk band Superman is Dead. I watched as the tourism industry, much of it foreign-owned or run by the heirs of the Sahado oligarchy, sucked Bali dry, just as mining corporations and fashion labels had done in decades gone by. And I grew darker and darker in my assessment of capitalism, global economics, and the actions of governments such as my own. What began as an innocent Indonesian sabbatical eventually destroyed all my faith in capitalism and the current world order. I spent so much time surrounded by poverty, making friends with those mired in it, knowing full well why they were in it. It jaded me for life. As powerless as surfers are to snip the strings of the global puppet masters, I learned that a bit of grassroots community work and some generous spending with locals will always go a long way.